Welcome to The Writing Life, the podcast for anyone who writes. I'm James Gill. And I'm Steph McKenna. From the National Centre for Writing here at Dragon Hall in Norwich. For this episode, I spoke to the wonderful Kirsty Logan. Kirsty's completely devoted to books. She's the award-winning writer of several novels, including The Gloaming and The Grace Keepers, and short story collections including A Portable Shelter and The Rental Heart and Other Fairy Tales. She recently wrote the Audible original, The Sound at the End, which is an Arctic ghost story. She's also a book reviewer, editor and mentor. I'm a big fan of Kirsty's work. I first read her short story collection, Things We Say in the Dark, and I've been working my way backwards through her bibliography ever since. So this conversation was a real treat. We had a lot to talk about on and off the microphone. Kirsty's new novel, Now She Is Witch, came out this month. It's a medieval witch revenge story unlike any other. We discuss the book as well as aspects of craft, including character, theme, structure, research, routine and inspiration. Now, of course, I've, I've listened to this conversation and I have to say it has all the ingredients of a great podcast. A, an exciting writer with interesting views. B, Steph McKenna. Thank you. C, great chemistry between A and B and witches. And E, leeches and leeches uh, you talk about how to build complex characters within fairy tales the difference between historical fiction and medievalism uh, and how witch stories reflect our feelings of being under threat in our world we cover a lot actually we talk about identity revenge and research beyond the internet Kirsty also starts our conversation with a reading a poem that she wrote during a writing residency you, dear listeners, how is your writing going? Have you mastered the basics of your chosen genres? Have you built a great routine? Are you getting professional feedback to guide and help you? If not, you might consider taking a 12-week tutored online course with the National Centre for Writing. Our courses include Zoom sessions and one-to-one tutor feedback. Choose from a range of genres and levels from absolute beginners up to intermediate. Courses are on sale now and term starts on January the 23rd. Head to the website for more information. And now we bring you Kirsty Logan and Steph McKenna. Kirsty, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Welcome to the Writing Life podcast. How are you today? I'm good. I'm good. How are you? Yeah, good. Thank you. It's so lovely to have you here. Um, I've been a fan of your writing for a while, and I've also had the pleasure of attending one of your writing workshops before. So getting to sit down with you today is a kind of a real treat for me. Um, and I've also been lucky enough to read a, an early copy of your latest book, Now She Is Witch, um, which is it's been a magical and engrossing experience. I've really loved reading that over the weekend. So I can't wait to get stuck in and to talk about it a bit more. But first, I think you're going to give us a reading of a poem that you've written. Did you want to intro the poem a bit and just outline, yeah, where the writing of this took place and sort of what inspired it? Yeah, so I wrote part of Now She Is Witch um, on a residency in a tower, which is it's in Northern Ireland and the rooms are literally kind of stacked one on top of each other. And right in the basement is a a room with a red door that bolts and it used to really freak me out. And I used to, every night before I went to bed, I had to go and look in the room and then make sure it was bolted just to make absolutely sure that there was nobody in there. And I really didn't have a great time while I was staying there. I was really cold. I was really lonely. Couldn't get the fire lit. Just felt really sorry for myself, to be honest. Even though I was, you know, staying in this beautiful place. It was by the sea, lovely little town. Um, 
And so what I did was I pretended that a, a witch, one of my witchy ancestors lived as a ghost in this building and was watching me scornfully, um, failing to do <laughs> all of these things like feed myself and warm myself and do my work and things like that. So um, this is a poem from the perspective of <laughs> the witch I imagined to be haunting me while I wrote this book. And it's called So As By Fire, So As By Sea. I begin where they held me, red door, black bolt, and so does she, opening my red door to see inside where nothing lives. She does not know yet, a witch's tricks are manyfold, strange noises and visitations of cats, blood dew and darkening suns and pins in poppets small cakes of feathers too tight to pull apart, coming to your window in the guise of a living woman to say, come out, come out, wherever you are. She shuts and bolts the red door to keep her safe from nothing. Fool girl, I have no bones now. There's no use in bolts now. She sits in the kitchen in a chair she took from the butcher's mother. She eats a little cake and reads a book meant for a child. We sit together, though she does not see me. I eat stone bread, eat stone pears, eat bones, tongues, shit. Oh, good devil, save me from this fool girl with her little cakes, fussing with bolts and doors. Following her heels, I spiral up the tower. Neat pile of clothes and the bathtaps cough hot. She collects hairs left by the last ghost and throws them away. She throws them, can't believe, fool girl, silly cakes. She throws a waste of hairs, no curses, no poppets, no revenging. On the phone, others call her cursed, like it's a name. Say a curse with intent, and it does what you want. Now clean, fool girl spirals upstairs and piles wood and twists paper, and nothing, and nothing, and nothing, and nothing, and nothing. Oh, fool girl, silly thing, go and eat cakes, you can't even light a fire. That is what I followed you for. If you could light the fire, I would be up the chimney. Sparks for eyes, throat a red coal. Instead, out the door she walks, down the road to the sea. I wait and I wait and I wait and I look at the little cakes I can't eat. And back she comes, a pocket full of shells, and I wait for her to stuff the shells with hair and make a boat for me. If you could make a boat, I would wait for rain and sail. Broomstick rudder, cat for dinner. One more try. I follow her. She sits at a desk, picks at old stains, makes up a story about a witch, and never once sees me. Come on, fool girl, tell a story about me, but don't tell it true. Make me new and clean and as false as your bloody red hair. If you could tell the story, I would live in that one instead of this. New vowel skin. T. T. Ticking tongue. In the dark she lies, watches the night yoke glow, slut naked windows, and she feels watched. And even then, she does not see me. The girl at her computer finds a tarot reading online, clicks the cards over and over until she sees what she wants. When she tires of that, she reads articles about me, or women like me, and women who never liked me, 
women who pointed sharp fingers and accused me of strange noises and visitations of cats. And she reads, To know a witch, you must walk her, watch her, wake her. Walk her round in circles for days, watch her always for wicked signs, while she does not sleep, never, not once. And this girl, oh let me tell you, this girl, this silly soft fool girl with her little cakes, wearing clothes she didn't sew, and eating food she didn't grow, and moving a body she never sold, a fool girl who's never not had a home, never not been believed, never had even one toenail torn off. She is no witch. Tarot cards and black frocks and pointy hat badges. Middle class, soft palmed, silly cake, baby book fool girl. Because in this tower she walked. She was watched. She lay awake. Because of that, she sees her in me. She sees me in her. Oh, fool girl, give a fist of your bloody hairs. I will curse you. You will eat stone, bones, shit instead of little cakes. You will be pricked and crushed and burned. Oh, fool girl, see if you like being a witch then. Now, if witches can be good as well as bad. Now, if there is no real magic. Now, no devil. Now, no malefice. Now no familiars, poppets, curses, night flights, wild hunts, if that, then what is a witch? I don't know, but it's not you. Fool girl feels cold. Fool girl feels sad. Fool girl feels alone. And so she leaves. Leaves the cold grate. Leaves the empty shell. Leaves the unfinished story. And before she goes, she unbolts the black bolt and opens the red door and looks inside. She doesn't see me waiting there. She doesn't see anything she doesn't want. She is full of cake and fate, full up to the eyes. And she leaves. Maybe that's why. Maybe that's why I wait and watch. To see my daughter's daughter's daughters eat cakes they didn't make and follow a trail even when it doesn't go where it's supposed to, and read a book meant for a child, and whine about hard things, and throw away hair, and be called cursed and smile in reply, and be fool girls, and lie in hot baths, and walk to beaches, and go home whenever they want. That was beautiful, thank you. Just thought how, uh, how scornful she would be of me. <laughs> I know I feel like I have it so hard sometimes and then I remember I think about these poor women before me and uh I love that yeah the image of the little cakes and the uh it's gorgeous and quite sad at the same time but um it feels very fitting to listen to a poem about that and to talk about witches in Dragon Hall where we're both sat um which has its own witch marks I don't know if you've seen those before ah Kirstie looks like Kirstie hasn't seen these so I will have to take her on a tour afterwards but we have, I think, about 200 witch marks around the building um, that uh, most date from when the building was sort of 
I say cut up into tenements and people sort of living in different rooms and um yeah there's there's burn marks around the windows and the doors and the fireplaces to keep the spirits out so I'll have to show you those afterwards it feels uh yeah feels like a very appropriate setting it's suitably magic for um a conversation that's kind of steeped in sort of history and storytelling and and witchcraft um when we first welcome someone onto the podcast who hasn't been on before I do like to just get a sense of where their writing began because it's called the writing life so um what has when did the writing life begin for you and what has that journey looked like so far for you Mm, in terms of as a professional writer or an aspiring writer uh when well when did you firstly when did you first start writing I guess as an aspiring writer and what did that moment look like for you when you went from um being an aspiring writer to becoming a professional writer and realizing actually I'm doing this for a living this is what I do now I don't know if I have reached that point maybe (laughs) I never will I don't know I mean I've always made up stories. Even when I was a tiny kid, I used to make up plays and force my family to watch me perform them, which they were very patient with. <laughs> and I'm very appreciative of um, of how much they indulged my sort of desire to, to tell stories and to, to make things up. You know, my, my favorite game when I was a kid was Villages, where I would lay out... Um, you know, like little toy houses and mm. things, but even things that could be a house, like a shoe or anything that was sort of box-like, yeah. anything like a shoe box, just absolutely anything um, that that could be used in that way. And I would put my like little Sylvanian, Sylvanian families or my little Lego people, and I would be sort of like an estate agent <laughs> almost. And I would sort of show them around, like do a, t- a tour of the village. You know, this is um, the bunny family and they live in this clog and um, here's what they do all day. You know, So I would kind of make up these stories of all these um little families and homes that I had made up so you were world building yeah like making this whole this whole village yeah I used to do things like that um so I think I always had that in me um but I sort of lost my way a bit that I sort of wanted to be a writer in theory but I thought people like me aren't really writers I don't know who I thought was a writer but not me I didn't know any writers I'd never met a writer I didn't really know what they did all day. I'm not sure I still know what they do all day, but I certainly didn't know then. So I thought, well, okay, it's not for me then. It's that that type of thing is not for the likes of me. And I sort of lost my way with it a little bit, but I always loved books. You know, I went to uni and I studied English and I spent four years just reading and things like that. And I sort of gradually found my way back into it. Um, but it's funny, I don't think that there has been a specific point mm-hmm. at which I thought, I am now a writer. It's actually only been the last few years. So I think after I'd published three or four books that I uh, I actually said that I was a writer. You know, said, yes, said, you call yourself a yeah, writer. Yeah, yeah. If someone said, oh, what do you do? Now I say, oh, I'm a writer. And I feel quite confident saying that. But for a long time, even after I had books published, I, I don't know. I, I felt as if someone was going to call me out on it. Someone was going to say, you're not really though, are you? I don't know why I thought that was going to happen. Um, just that imposter syndrome thing, I suppose. So I don't, I mean, you, you know, you can pinpoint moments like when I got the call about my book selling or when the first book came out or various things or when I, I sort of, and there wasn't even really a specific point where I became a full-time writer. I was doing lots of other freelance work and then one by one they would fall away and I would think, well, I'm okay for the next six months, so I will just focus on writing and I won't do anything else. And then I just kind of do that every six months. Mm-hmm. I go, well, 
it's looking fine for the next six months. Um, I don't have to go and work in the cafe on the corner. I actually don't think I'm qualified to work in the cafe on the corner anymore. <laughs> I used to make coffee for a living, but um, I was never very good at not, it. Not so a great coffee maker. I would need to train up even to do that. So um, I, that's even my my backup that I don't think exists anymore. Um, but yeah, I don't really feel like there was a specific point that I thought, I am now a writer. Mm. Um, it's really difficult. And I think we put all these rules in place that you're only a writer if you have a book published. You're only a writer if you make most of your money from books. Or you're only a writer if you're doing it full time. All these things. And it's just not the case for most writers that I know. And I also find as soon as we achieve something, we then just move the goalposts and then it'll be something else. It'll yeah. always be, there'll always be some, some goal that we haven't quite reached yet. So yeah, that was a very long answer just to say that I don't, I don't really have a clear answer for that. I think it's, it's heartening. I think it will be heartening for people to hear that though, because it's that I hear that all the time when we have, you know, people from all walks of life coming to Dragon Hall um, and, you know, some have published, some haven't, some have just started writing, some have been doing it for decades and almost no one dares call themselves a writer. And I think it's, you know, hearing someone say, actually, you know, I've published four, five, six books and I'm still only just starting to call, you know, daring to call myself a writer. I don't know what it is, but we're so shy about um, calling ourselves that. So, but it can be reassuring, I think, to hear someone else who has, you know, um, a publishing career or a career of being published who's you know doing lots of things I mean you're sort of spanning novel writing and short stories and podcasts and radio I think it um, it's reassuring to to know that everyone else shares that kind of imposter syndrome as well um, it just doesn't seem like a real job either. <laughs> like um, a friend of mine uh, he I met him through my wife and when she introduced him she was like oh he's a he's a singer and I was like don't be ridiculous people aren't, <laughs> that's not a job people aren't singers he is a singer and our neighbor he's a dancer he dances with the ballet and I was like he can't be a dancer that's not a job it's like we're yeah. hardwired it's if we do anything sort of creative or cultural we almost don't dare put that on your resume as something that you do as a as a job whereas you know if you're an accountant you're an accountant or I can say I work in marketing it's a different thing so we need to I don't know we need to have more confidence don't we and also someone has to do it I think that's what I didn't really realize growing up is people do write books Mm -hmm. go and look in the bookshop it's full of books people have written them People, ordinary people, have written those books. Um, my my little nephew, bless him, he's such a sweetie, and he was saying at, at school, he was like, my Auntie Kirsty, um, she's a writer. And his teacher was basically like, she's not, though, is she? <laughs> and he, he actually brought one of my books in and was like, look, this as is proof. my auntie. Yeah, as proof Part that proof. it was not some made-up some made up thing. Although my other nephew, who's much younger, um, I was trying to impress him. Don't ever try and impress a six-year-old because <laughs> it's not going to work. And I was like, did you know, did you know that um, Auntie Kirsty writes books? And he was not very impressed, but he took that to mean that I wrote all books. Ah, that was what I did. I was the book production person yeah. of all, all books. So then we were in the bookshop and he said in a really loud voice, my Auntie Kirsty wrote all of these and sort of waved his hand loftily at this huge bookcase. And I had to be like, no, no, I didn't say that. <laughs> didn't just, a few of just a few of these. Yeah, bless him. It's funny that we're shy about yeah shy about writing stories and storytelling when books and stories are the things that are going to outlive us and you know I'm not I mean I'm not putting a I'm not shaming accountants and I'm not shaming you know people who work in marketing or 
But actually, those stories are the things that go on forever. So the the stories that you're telling are incredibly important. So I don't. It's funny that we're so shy of expressing ourselves in that way but congratulations on being able to call yourself a writer nowadays that's nice isn't it it's like a big step forward yeah I still slightly cringe because quite often the next question is have you written anything I would have heard of and obviously you're like well you wouldn't ask that if the answer was yes you wouldn't have to ask (laughs) exactly so have you written no No. I won't say that promise um but I did uh, before we talk about now she is witch which is your um your new book uh I wanted to ask um so I'd kind of said that your you, writing spans novels and short stories and you've recently, um, you've done podcasts before, you've worked on radio. Your writing often addresses the purpose of storytelling and the stories we tell ourselves and others. Um, and on, one of the oldest forms of storytelling is, of course, sort of fairy tales and folk stories. Um, and the stories that you often um tell seem inspired by or have the feeling of a fairy tale or superstition or folklore what is it that draws you to this kind of storytelling and why do you think those stories stand the test of time so well Mm. yeah I love to write things that feel maybe timeless is the wrong word because timeless suggests it will last forever not really so much that but just that they exist out with time Mm. that they don't necessarily exist in a specific time and place and I really enjoy that a lot of folk tales and fairy tales they really speak to the most basic human emotions Mm. I don't believe there ever has been or ever will be a time that human beings don't feel love betrayal Mm. frustration envy anger a lot of ambition, you know, a lot of um, the classic stories really focus on these emotions. And I just think it's so basic to human existence. So Mm -hmm. I think there's always going to be something in these stories. You know, a lot of um, myth retellings are really big. Fairy tale retellings are always going to be popular. And myth retellings, Greek myths are really popular for retellings at the moment. And I think it's just because they talk about basic human emotions, basic issues and concerns that we have Mm. um both within ourselves and interpersonally as well um so I think that's part of the appeal um I also there's a lot of other things I've been asked this question a lot so I've Mm. really really thought about it and my answer's kind of changed over the years because I've realized I also really like the brevity of them I like the brevity of a a fairy tale and the the way it gets right to the point Mm. it usually lays out in the first sentence, what the main issue is. You know, the Miller's youngest son went to seek his fortune. There once was a princess trapped in a tower. You know, it sort of lays it out really quickly, no mucking about, you know, exactly what the story's about. And I really like that. I think for a writer, there's a lot of lessons to be learned. We're always told you need conflict, you need conflict. What's the situation? What's the character's journey? Well, look at a fairy tale. You can tell immediately what the character's journey is going to be. What is the problem? What's the issue that this character's having? Um, And actually, something I've realised lately, on a much shallower, more aesthetic level, I just really like the aesthetics of fairy tales. I really like the glass slippers. I like... um, There's one of my favourite, Kate Krakenuts, is about this... um, a scepter, a golden scepter, that when you get tapped on it, on the head, your head pops off and a sheep's head pops on. Oh, wow. Yeah, right? But you need to find it again and tap it again if you want to get your head back. <laughs> and the sheep, I, I assume the sheep has your head, although I don't know if it said it in the fairy tale, actually. I don't know where your head goes. Um, I, I just love all that. I love um, the, there's a fairy tale about someone has a, um, 
a gown like the sun, a gown like a, like the moon and a gown like the stars, you know, just all that. I think, yeah, just on a very shallow level. I love all that stuff. There's a lot of stuff to do with shoes in fairy tales, you know, glass slippers or uh, in Snow White. One of the versions that we don't tell young children so much is that at the end, the, the stepmother has to dance to death in red hot shoes. So she wears these oh, metal shoes that get heated red hot and she has to dance until she dies. So um, yeah, pretty dark. But I, I just find the aesthetics and the kind of, I guess the beauty and the gore, the beauty and the grimness of fairy tales, the way that they exist right next to each other. Like it will be, the characters have these sort of beautiful, horrible deaths, mm. <laughs> which I find yeah. really yeah. fascinating. Or for example, in um, Cinderella, Obviously, we know about the glass slipper. But again, in some versions, the one of the stepsisters, who aren't ugly, by the way, I don't know where that came from. They just they just aren't Cinderella. Yeah. Um, their feet are too big to fit in the slipper. So one of them cuts her toes off to fit her foot in the shoe. And then, so the prince, you know, pulls her up mm-hmm. onto his horse. And as they're riding away, the birds all sing to him, look, 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 the shoe's filling up with blood. She's not your real, it rhymes, I can't remember what the rhyme is. Um, So then the other one cuts her heel off to fit the shoe on. And again, the shoe fills up with blood. And I guess I I find it really fascinating, sort of beautiful and horrible, this image of this glass shoe filling up with blood Mm -hmm. and him somehow not noticing this happening. I don't know how he didn't see when he put the shoe on, but there you go. Um, And this is not very child-friendly, what I'm about to say next, but there is also a theory that it's a mistranslation and instead of a glass slipper it's actually meant to be a fur slipper because it's translated from French and I'm not great at French but in French glass and fur sound very similar I think there is the word and I I think they sound very similar so it's actually meant to be a sort of lewd joke he tests all the fur slippers in the land of course To find the right one. That's, yeah, that's the version you don't tell people. Yes, the very that's... crude version. Mm-hmm. I like this idea of kind of horror and beauty or the, the kind of, yeah, the, the horrific and the beautiful existing at once. And um, when I was, I was, I was thinking a lot about um, things that exist that are opposite, but also exist alongside each other and are sort of closely connected. When I was reading Now She Is Witch, because my first instinct would be to call a book like this kind of magical realism. But that doesn't feel quite right because it feels too much like categorising your... Too much like categorization really, when your characters and your stories sort of often occupy a gap between things, I think. It might be a fairy tale and reality or historical fiction or fantasy or sort of the logical and the fantastical... Um, and there's a lot in this book about sort of light and dark, maiden or witch. And these aren't just polar opposite things. They also exist together as well. Um, and is this kind of space between things, something about sort of being both and neither at the same time, something you've noticed a lot in your own writing? Do you, is it, is it something you purposefully seek to address or is it kind of a happy coincidence that it's happened? Yeah, good question. I, yeah, I think if there's anything that ties together all my writing, um, everything I've ever written, really, it's about recognizing beyond binaries Mm. that that we don't just have a choice of two things in this world. There's no completely good, completely evil. Um, It's it's not just as simple as you have one thing or you have another thing. And that's it. No other choices, nothing in the middle. 
no merging of boundaries and I just don't think the world is like that and no. I don't think it should be like that and I don't think it is like that so I think in all my books it's all about realizing that when you're presented with a choice of two things you don't have to choose one or the other you can actually you can merge them you can have a little bit of one a little bit of another you can go in a completely different direction and just have neither of them yeah. and have something completely separate um and I think maybe just growing up queer is how I sort of came to that and I will say that I do identify as a cis person so um it's not so much my own gender that um brought me to that but just understanding that I was being given a choice of something and just thinking I don't really want that and I don't Mm. really know what I do want but I know it's not that Mm. and I think like a lot of people I think from a very young age I knew I was queer even though I didn't really have the language to articulate that and I didn't really know what it meant and it was really only when I was older that I started to to know the language and to to really understand what that meant for me Mm. so I just really think growing up seeing the world slightly askance and knowing that what I was being given wasn't quite what I wanted Mm. or not quite what was right for me. Um, I think that's what kind of led me to that. And I really like that you mentioned about the, you know, is it magical realism? Is it not? Because I think that's what really drew me to writing about the middle ages. I find it such a fascinating period. And I, I, I am by no means a scholar of the Middle Ages. It's not a historically accurate book, I will say. I learned this phrase, medievalism, mm. um, which means not necessarily um, historically accurate. For all, you could write a historically accurate medieval novel that would be in any way coherent to, to a modern reader. Um, it's more looking at the, the kind of concerns and themes of mm. the Middle Ages and sort of making a story that's relevant to, to modern times from those themes. Obviously, like nobody's got an iPhone or anything, but um, it's it's not necessarily going to be... Because how would we even have the dialogue be accurate? I don't mm. think that you could. Um, but what really fascinates me about that period of time is the way that magic existed or what we might think of as magic, existed very much as part of daily life. Mm. Which I actually don't think is that different than how we live now. I don't know about you. I read my horoscope. I (laughs) like tarot cards. I don't really believe, but I don't not believe either. And I think a lot of people, they don't believe things. They will say they're not superstitious. They don't believe in woo-woo. They're not going to walk under a ladder, though. And they'll say, well, it's just because it's dangerous to walk under a ladder. But is it or is it because you think it's unlucky? We all believe in some kind of luck. We all, we cross our fingers. There's a crossing fingers emoji, even. So I touch wood all the time. touch wood, right? Yeah. And do you know why people do that? It's um, to placate the pixies that live in oh, the trees. So you don't even know there why I'm go. doing it, but it's, it's built into me to do it. Say touch wood, because apparently it's like pixies live in the trees or some kind of elves live in the trees. So you touch it to say, it's okay, I'm acknowledging you please don't come and bring me terrible things so that's why people do that but I think we're all a little bit like that even if we think we don't go in for magical thinking like I think I'm a massive skeptic and I don't believe in anything even though I'm fascinated by it all but I mean I'm as woo-woo as the next person to be honest but that was what I found so fascinating is not just in terms of belief and things that people actively believed in, but also perhaps the mindset that people were in. And again, I'm not a scholar. There was lots of different theories. It's really hard to say um, really anything 100% about the Middle Mm. Ages because you will always find some other Middle Ages scholar will disagree. But as I understand it from the reading that I did, um, a lot of times people were just on a different plane of existence. For example, um, 
there was a thing called the hungry gap in the summer. So um, around the summer, the winter stores had all run out, but it wasn't time to harvest the new things yet. So people were basically starving. Um, and there is a theory, which I'm sure you've heard, that a lot of the witch panics were actually caused by rotten grain, by ergot poisoning from the rotten grain. And the reason that that would have happened is that the grain stores would have got right, right down to the bottom. So it would be this grain that was at the bottom of the pile that had got a bit damp and maybe had this fungus in it. And then it got made into the bread. And there was actually, well, something I read anyway, called it dream bread. Um, that it was known that it could give you these kind of visions or this altered state of being. And sometimes people ate it because they didn't have a choice because it was that or eat nothing. Mm. Or sometimes they ate it purposefully to to kind of bring on these visions or, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, but lots of people like a little drink or it's they like edible. to, it's, it's yeah. an edible, exactly. It's a medieval edible. You know, lots of people nowadays, yeah. we like that kind of thing, you know, um, it's certainly not a new aspect of human nature that we like to go to a different plane of existence for a short period of time. Um, so yeah, quite often people were literally just on another plane. Um, it was believed that people had visions. Um, it was believed there was a, a thing called a revenant, um, which was what we might think of as a somewhere between a ghost and a zombie. So it was believed that bodies could quite literally physically bodily rise from the grave and kind of go back. Um, there was a, a folktale I think perhaps a Cornish folktale. Um, I may be wrong about that. About a baker who died and his family were struggling to make the bread on time. And so he rose from the grave, walked through the town, terrifying everybody, but just went to the bakery and helped them to make the bread. And then the next day went back to his grave and laid perfectly happily for the rest of eternity. But he just wanted to to help with that. Um, so I think the line between what was considered reality and what was considered fantasy was not not solid. You know, mm. again, it was not a binary. It was not like this is real and this is mm. imaginary. There was It was porous, much like it is now. I mm. really don't think we're that different now. No. I think what we consider real and imaginary, it's always going to be a little bit messy. Yeah. So this novel is um, a medieval witch revenge story um, and it centres on two women or, well, yeah, it does centre on two women, Lux and Elsie. Um, and this kind of relates to what you were just saying. Um, I don't want to say witches are having a moment because they never stopped having a moment. They have always been there. But I personally have read or come across a number of books recently by women that are kind of settled the 16th or the 17th century sort of feature accusations of witchcraft. So um, everything from sort of like the Manning Tree Witches by A.K. Blakemore, um, a recently read Hex by Jenny Fagan, which is sort of set in a prison cell in Edinburgh in um, the 1590s. Um, I'm about to read The Bewitching by Jill Dawson, mm -hmm. um, which is 16th century accusations of witchcraft in Huntingdonshire. Um and what, what is it, do you think, that compels us to look back on history and write these stories now? Why did you want to write Lux and Elsie's story mm. now? Right I will point. say those those dates are more historically accurate than mine. Ah, interesting. Because the, the kind of, the, a lot of the witch trials were really post-medieval, yeah, yeah, whereas sure. I've sort of shunted sure. them yeah, a few yeah, hundred yeah. years forward mm. so I'm already playing around with history yeah. there so please don't come to me for historical accuracy <laughs> much more focused on story um the reason I wanted to write about witches so that's why I wanted to write about the middle ages because I loved that merging of mm. the kind of the fantastical and the real mm. and witches 
I felt for a long time, well, not I felt, I think it's true that for a long time, um, the narrative was that witches were evil. Um, and I think when we talk about witch trials now, they are this very convenient um, blank space. Mm-hmm. We're always asking, what did witch trials really mean? Were they an attack on women? Were they um, an attack on traditional midwives and healers? Were they this? Were they that? And I think we never really stop and think, maybe witch trials were because people believed in witches, Mm -hmm. people believed in witchcraft. We don't ever ask ourselves, when we look at murder trials or kidnap trials or sexual assault trials from history, we don't think, but what did they mean? What Mm -hmm. did a murder trial mean? Because we believe that murder is wrong. Mm -hmm. We believed it was wrong then and we believe that it's wrong now. Whereas not everywhere in the world, but most places in the world now don't believe in witchcraft. They don't believe you can make a pact with the devil. They don't believe that you can put a curse on someone just by saying some words. We don't believe that. Some places do still believe that. Generally, most places don't. So it becomes this blank space that we can fill with whatever we like, really. Mm. What we can we can interpret them in so many ways. But I just don't know if people at the time were doing that. They mm. thought that witchcraft was wrong. They thought it was evil. It was frightening. They thought that they could be genuinely harmed. Perhaps, or perhaps they were just a convenient way, much like often people use the law now in convenient Mm. ways to get rid of people that they don't really like. So I think for a long time, the narrative was witches are bad, witches are evil, 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 awful. Even like horror films right up to the 70s, even now you see horror films where the baddie is an evil witch and she's going to steal babies and eat them. And then I think there was a bit of a backlash, again, kind of starting in about the 60s and the 70s, but coming into now. There was a backlash that was like, no, no, witches were simply misunderstood. They were good, good women. They were healers. They were midwives. This was just an attack. This was a way to get rid of um, inconvenient women. I'm not saying that either of those things are incorrect. What I'm saying is, why are those the only two options? Yeah, it kind of goes back to that. The, why is it two options just a choice of two? To it doesn't from, have to be yeah. a choice of two. And I really reject this perfect victim narrative. I really, I think what I wanted to do with this book is to really say... Is it only sad if someone gets burned as a witch if they were good? What if they weren't good? What if they were actually quite horrible? Is it still, is it okay then to burn them as a witch or not? Um, and for, for my inspiration, um, I took one of the most famous trials, um, which I'm going to mangle the history of this, but Jeanette Winterson wrote a brilliant book about this called The Daylight Gate, which is probably the most famous um, witch trial in in the UK, as far as I know. Um, And the women who were accused, it was these two families, these two kind of blended families. And mostly it was the two women, um, the kind of grandmothers of the families, and they were very poor. Um, They lived in this sort of abandoned, I believe it was called Malkin Tower, this tower just kind of outside the town. And they all lived there together, very poor, very hungry, very cold, and they would beg in the town. And if people didn't give them things, they would place curses on them or say that they were going to do terrible things to them um and they smelled and they were disabled a lot of them were single mothers with no husbands in the picture and everybody hated them because Mm. they were inconvenient and they didn't fit nicely into their societal roles and so but they weren't nice they weren't what we would consider like good victims they weren't perfect victims they weren't just sitting there innocently doing their knitting in their houses and someone came along and accused them you know they were not nice people but I don't think that that means that it's okay and I don't think that people have to be perfect victims in order for us to want to defend them or to want to think well you can't actually burn this person or it was more likely that they would be hanged actually but 
that was what I wanted to do. So Lux in the book, she's not perfect by any means. Um, she steals, she lies, she is shallow. She's very desirous. She's very hungry all the time. She wants sex. She wants comfort. She wants nice clothes. She wants all these things. I mean, most of all, she wants self-determination, but she also wants her creature comforts. And if she has to take them away from someone else to have them for herself, then she will. Um, and else the other main character who she's a bit of a complex character, mm. her whole narrative is this revenge quest. So she's not a nice person. She's not turning the other cheek. She's not thinking, well, this man has wronged me, but I will, I will just rise above and be a good woman and, and get over it. No, no. She's, she's like, no, no, I want him dead. I want him dead for what he's done to me. Um, so that's what I wanted to do to mm. say, well, they don't have to be evil, but they don't have to be good either. Mm. They can be like most of us. They can exist somewhere in the middle. Yeah. A lot of the, and the other characters in the book as well, the young girls in the kitchen that Lux works with, they're all, um, yeah, you know, they, they're using, they're telling stories about each other. Sometimes, as you say, you know, if people sort of throwing accusations around of witchcraft aren't always doing so because they're malicious people. They're, some of them are really fearful and they genuinely think that that is something that exists um, and that is a threat to them, whereas other people are using that to their, you know, using those stories to their benefit or for some leverage. Um, yeah, I really like that. I thought Lux was a brilliant character for that reason. And she was discovering, she was sort of discovering herself and her, um, she was coming into herself along the way throughout the journey of this book. Um, well, actually, I'll answer your earlier question. Yeah, I think you make a really good point about the accusations. And I think Possibly that's why um, there is um, a real movement of witch novels at the moment and quite complex witch novels and witch novels that really focus on accusations because I think that feels very relevant to right mm. now that a lot of people feel very powerless and they feel very concerned about their place in the world for good reason because it in a lot of ways feels like the world is crumbling um, politically, environmentally, financially, everything. It can really feel like we're all in trouble and we're all going to have what we have be taken away from us. So I think when we feel under threat, what do we do? We want to lash out. We're not going to lash up yeah, because that doesn't get us anywhere. So we're going to punch down. Mm. And I think we're seeing that a lot lately. People who feel under threat, whether or not it's a genuine threat, they feel that they're under threat. And so they're going to find someone who has less. And I think that's what the characters in the book do. They are girls. They are poor. They own nothing. They have no families. They don't have anything. So they are not going to lash out at the Lord. They're not mm. going to lash out at someone who has all this power. Mm. Who is the person that's causing them all these problems in the first place? They're going to find someone weaker than them, someone who has less than them. Mm. And take it out on them you know if Lux says this in the book that if you want to take something from someone it's a lot easier to take it from someone who has less than you mm. because they are not able to fight back mm. um, which is not a moral or right thing to do but it is a thing that humans do that we all do mm. I'm certainly not exempting myself from from any of this terrible behavior mm. I think yeah when we feel threatened we lash out um, mm. so I think that's possibly why they're having such a moment because we're seeing that a lot lately mm. um, people going after people who are perceived to have less um, less power, less privilege um, in this world yeah, absolutely and it's not right but I do understand where it comes from yeah, yeah, absolutely and it's a story that is um, so Lux's story is I mean it's, it's, it's like a, 
I don't want to say an onion, but it's it's layers <laughs> upon layers upon layers of um, constantly changing narratives and stories, lies, rumors, superstition, um, stories that she has learned from her mother that she's telling, story that she hears from others. Um, and that that really spoke to me as well, and the sort of that links through to what we have at the moment as well in terms of just the number of f- false narratives and you know the stories we hear about other people and that we're told and that we're expected to believe um, at the moment is absolutely everywhere. So I I thought maybe there was a connection there as well in terms of the sort of yeah. the stories we invent about ourselves and. Yeah, absolutely. I think most of us are living multiple lives at the moment. Most of us are living, um, to some extent, an online life. Um, Some people live very much on social media. Some Mm. people don't have any social media at all. But to some extent, we have our online life. And then we have what was previously called our real life. I don't think it's as simple as that anymore. I don't think that it's your online life is fake. And your in-person life is real. Some a lot of people feel that they can. It's only safe for them to be their real selves online. Mm-hmm. Perhaps where they physically live, their family situation. It's actually not safe for them to be themselves. So actually, their online persona might be more authentically them. It might be they, they feel more safe and more able to be themselves online. So again, I think that's really got muddied, and I don't think it's a binary thing. I don't think it's you know online life is fake and in-person life is is real Mm. I think it can be a lot more complex than that and I think as well one of the things in the book is that it's very important to um know who you are and define who you are because uh if you don't then someone will do it for you Mm. and I think it's really important that we respect who people tell us that they are Mm. um if they yeah if someone says this is who I am well then that is who they are and who are we to say that they're not Mm. that they're not that person Mm. and Lux at the beginning of this book her her character is very much defined by um what she's been told about what other people have told her about herself and the stories um that she has been told and a lot she recites a lot of the stories and the beliefs that she's been told by her mother and by the end she's she's kind of defining that story for herself isn't she and I really loved the way that her I got such a strong sense of her that it was slowly being revealed to me through these stories. So the stories she told of sort of the North witches, you know, women turning into hares and the stories told about her. Could you talk a bit about how you've used sort of storytelling and that kind of device of stories within stories as a way for kind of shaping Lux as a character? Because I think it's... I don't, I don't get a sense of Lux from, you know, she has brown hair and she does this and then she went and did this. It was, yeah, it was this sense of pe- people telling her stories about her and her telling stories to other people that really gave me a better sense of who she was and who she was growing to be. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think we all do that. I think, you know, as a teenager in the 1990s, that's what I did. So I don't see why Lux, who was a teenager in the, what, 1390s, I don't see why she would be any different. That I I know for me, I was very shaped by the stories that I heard, whether that was stories from books, stories in films, on TV, stories that I heard from people around me, um, just the models that I thought were possible for what I could be in life. And I would try them on, you know, like an outfit. You think, could I be this? I guess I could be this. And for me as well, 
the relationships that I was in, um, if I would have a girlfriend or a boyfriend, I would be like, could I be the person that this person wants me to be or needs me to be? And for a while I would think, sure I can, I can do that. And then it's maybe only after a period of time that I would thought, I would think, oh, that's actually not me at all. Um, and it's, it was really only when I got into my sort of late twenties, early thirties, even that I realized I didn't have to be something for someone else. I could mm. find someone who um, just loved me the way that I wasn't, but wanted me to keep improving myself and keep trying to be, you know, a better person, a kinder person, a calmer person, a more ambitious person, um, all of these things. Um, so yeah, it was, it's, yeah, I really like the way you, you have defined that. Yeah. That she's sort of trying on all these identities that she, she gets sent to this sanctuary, which is a kind of a holy place, um, for sort of wayward girls, I suppose. Mm -hmm. And she gets sent there and she thinks, I can do this. I can be this, I can be this holy girl. I can do it. And it's, but it's not her. She tries it and she thinks, do you know what? That's actually not, that's not working for me. And then she meets up with this mama troupe. So they perform these, they perform stories, um, and it's a little bit complicated because they initially seem to be rebels and to kind of live out with society and play by their own rules. But none of us really do live out with society. We all have to play by some kind of rules in order to survive. So it turns out that they do have to do that. Um, and they say to her, she can be the maiden. She can kind of travel with them and be this sort of slightly sexualized but still pure figure. So she's like, I can do this. I can do that. So she becomes the maiden and then that doesn't really suit her either. She um, comes to this stronghold as part of Elsa's revenge quest. And so she thinks, I can do this. I can be a kitchen girl. Um, and so she does that for a while. It doesn't really suit her. You know, she, she takes on all these personas and she, I won't give away everything that happens, but she sort of works her way up through the stronghold mm. and sort of gets closer and closer to, to figures of power and kind of grasps for more power for herself. And each time she thinks, I can do this. I can do, I can be that. But it doesn't quite fit her. But then they are all her. She's not not these things. It's just that that's not the extent of her. Mm. And I think that that's true of all of us. You know, we can be all different things. You know, I am a woman, a writer, a wife, a mother. I can be all of these things. But I don't think any one of them fully defines me. And I think that that's true for absolutely everyone. Mm. We have so many different, these kind of Venn diagrams of all our different identities that some overlap and some conflict, but they're all within us. I really don't think anyone can be boiled down to one simple thing. Mm. I'm imagining if Lux existed nowadays and she had Instagram, that she'd be trying on these different <laughs> identities, these different outfits, just in a more public arena, actually. And every few weeks she'd be, yeah, doing something new. But I guess that's what social media about is about for young people as well, is kind of you get a very public sense of, how people were growing and trying on new things and gaining this sense. Um, yeah, I think she would, she would change her username a lot. She would. <laughs> That's exactly what she'd be changing her Twitter name. Yeah. Uh, with the seasons. <laughs> yeah. Brilliant. Um, yeah, so you've got Lux's stories. You say she's, you know, now she's a maiden, now she's a kitchen girl. Um, and uh, these these form the kind of chapter headings as well throughout the story. Um, I love the way this book is structured. So you've got uh, a kind of five part structure and we've got this revenge narrative that you've mentioned with Elsie um, and the kind of plot that is unfolding around us but we also have Lux and Elsie's sort of individual backstories that are, that are expressed almost like fragments of memory or stream of consciousness um, could you talk a bit about the structure of this novel and sort of the decisions that you made and how you went about writing Lux and Elsie's kind of intertwining stories 
Yeah, yeah. I, I'm such a nerd for structure. I love structure. And I think the thing is, I'm not really a natural novelist. I think I fit the short story form oh, that's interesting. more kind of naturally. I have to, I really have to work at a novel. Like it does not come easily to me at all. This book took six years. Oh, wow. Such a long time. I mean, I took some breaks. You know, there was the pandemic. I took a bit of time <laughs> off. <laughs> Had a baby, took a bit of time off around that time. Um, but yes, yeah, it took a really long time. And I think you know, all my novels are written in chunks. Um, Gracekeepers, my first novel, was it's written from a kind of shifting uh, perspective. So every character gets their own chapter from their perspective. And then there are the two main characters who we repeatedly return to. And then The Gloaming, which was my second novel, again, is written in these kind of small chapters. And it flips back and forth between the present and the past. And I think I'm basically just trying to trick myself into convincing myself that I'm just writing a series of small <laughs> stories and they will eventually come together and kind of make a bigger story. Because the thought of just writing one chronological story is quite horrifying to me. I'm so in awe of anyone who can write just one chronological story from one character's perspective. Incredible work. I could never, maybe one day, um, but right now I can't do that. So what I wanted to do with this, it's in these five parts. And I actually made each one its own quest. Um, so each section begins and ends um, both geographically and emotionally in a different place. Mm -hmm. So in each section, we go on a journey with the character. And again, this is just how I had to do it in order to sort of make it move in my mind. And the two, yeah, the two kind of flashback scenes are written quite differently. So... Lux's section, um, I'm going to go so nerdy with this. This was a really specific thing. Maybe someday someone will do their PhD on this and they can they can focus on this, why I decided to do this. Um, so her section is written all out of order. Um, so it jumps around a lot in time. And the reason that I did that was that I had been reading this brilliant book about the Middle Ages and it was saying that people's sense of time was different. Quite often people didn't know exactly how old they were. They would know roughly how old they were but maybe not exactly. Mm. They wouldn't, I don't believe birthdays were really celebrated. Um, there were a lot of festivities, a lot of celebrations, a lot of holy days, feast days, that kind of thing. People didn't really celebrate individual birthdays. So they wouldn't really know exactly how old they were. Um, things were very much done by the seasons. Um, and there wasn't really so much of a sense of time passing as we would think of it now. Um, the actual literal length of the days changed. So the day was... Uh, taken by the amount of daylight. Cool. So an hour was actually longer in the summer than... Nobody had a clock, really. Clocks were incredibly expensive. So there would be a tolling bell or like a church bell that would sound the hours if you lived in a city. But if you lived out in the countryside, you wouldn't really have that. You wouldn't really know what time it was at any point. And there was also no need, really, to know what specific time it was. There weren't trains running or anything. You wouldn't have to be somewhere at a specific time. Um... So in the summer, an hour was a lot longer. In the winter, an hour was a lot shorter. Um, and light was very expensive to create. Um, there was Candles were very expensive. You could have rush lights, but they smelled and they were very smoky. So it's actually quite difficult to make light in the dark. So people would just kind of stay in and when it was dark, go to sleep, that kind of thing. Um, so the reason that that jumped around in time is partly because of that. because And also because I wanted to give the sense that this is actually quite a difficult story for her to relay. Because it's, it's what brought her to where mm. she is at the beginning of the novel. And the novel opens with her digging her mother's grave. And she doesn't actually have her mother's body. She, all she knows is her mother has been killed as a witch. She doesn't have a body to bury, but she is symbolically digging this grave for her mother and she can't do it because it's winter the ground is hard she can't dig into the frozen ground um and she has kind of come back to this empty house 
where her mother's gone. So this is the story of kind of what brought her to that point. It's very difficult for her to tell. So she kind of jumps around a lot because she hasn't really understood herself what what has happened during this time. Um, And she says herself, you know, it feels like it was always summer. It just feels like it was this endless summer, even though she was actually there for years. This is how she's kind of processing it in her mind because it was this traumatic Mm. experience for her. Um, And as that section goes on, it becomes more chronological because she's slowly starting to make sense of all the pieces. And it's all written in present tense as well. So most of the book is written quite traditionally in a past tense, limited first person, sorry, limited third person. Whereas these sections are written in first person, present tense, because it's like it's happening to her now as she's retelling it. Um, so that's why that one is told that way. And then Elsa's chapter, um, which is also written in a similar stream of consciousness, but different because obviously her voice is different. And I really wanted that to have the structure of like an old murder ballad mm. or like an old um, folk song. So there's a chorus, there's like verses and a chorus. And you know, those kind of like an old country song or a murder ballad, it will have a narrative. Mm-hmm. So it will kind of tell this um, this um, coherent narrative. So it does that. And again, it appears to jump around in time, but actually what happens is that the, the verses, and it's, it's obvious on the page, which is which, the verses um, follow a chronological narrative, but then, uh, and they span quite a long period of time as well. Whereas the... The choruses are just this this one very traumatic incident that happened to her and it's all told kind of very intensely um, and it, she keeps returning to it and it's this phrase and it builds each time so it's this phrase it all comes back to this the gold girl mm. the blue pool and each time we come back one more element is added onto that list and the story moves forward so that's what I want to do with that is have this kind of yeah murder ballad or folktale structure to it and it was fun um I just did the audiobook for this I narrated the audiobook I read it much slower than I'm speaking right now <laughs> I'm very Glaswegian speaking very quickly um and they were really fun to do in the audio because it was think we were thinking how can I convey in audio the way that it's laid out on the page and the the sections of her narrating this trauma they're written there's no punctuation it's just the sort of block of text on the page so her other parts are written like a poem with a lot of line breaks and a lot of white space on the page so hopefully you read them at a more leisurely pace whereas these bits I imagine the reader reading really really quickly because it's she has to get it out quickly because she can't even stop or she won't be able to tell the story so I had to read those sections like that and it was I was thinking when am I supposed to breathe (laughs) in these sections um but it was quite fun to to play around with that and think how am I going to convey that um in the audio so yeah that's why I did the sections like that um so each one in theory you can read um the two sections two and four you could read as a standalone piece a little standalone story they're like little self-contained narratives but then obviously they do tie in a lot with the rest of the story yeah I love that you said um that writing a novel from just one perspective or you know just one narrative all the way through sounds like a really difficult thing to do when actually the structure you've put together is I mean it's yeah it's so intricate um but it it works so beautifully so it does all come together so well it's this you know as you say it's moving around in time and perspective and you have this stream of consciousness and you have something that's maybe a bit more traditional in terms of its kind of 
structure, I guess. Um, but the whole experience as a whole um, does feel very sort of seamless and natural to me. How, I mean, this might be a difficult question, but how do you go about ensuring that a reader doesn't get all lost or confused by a structure like that? Maybe oh, that is gosh. too difficult a question. It's funny. I mean, I find that kind of structure easier to put together in mm. my head than just a sort of beginning to end mm. this, then this, then this. I, I really struggle with things like that because um, I feel like you can play around with pace a lot mm. more. Um, so I actually find it easier. I think just uh, going it over it and over it. So this has been through a lot of changes. So as I said, it took me six years um, it was it was huge. Uh, it was this huge, big, bloated thing, and then I workshopped it and I cut loads of it out. I cut probably a sixth of the book out because mm-hmm. it was just too waffly and it didn't have the right pace. And then what I actually did. So my wife is just so amazing and supportive. Al Annie, love you. Um, and she's heard out loud everything that I've ever written, pretty much. Um, so I actually read the whole thing out loud to her. What, what we used to do before we had a baby, um, we used to go on these road trips and I would like read to her what I'd been writing while, while she drove, but we can't do that anymore. It's the most romantic thing ever. (laughs) Actually with, um, with the, I think it was the gloaming, um, my second book, we were on honeymoon in Iceland and we wanted to drive out to this, um, glacier and it was a really long drive. It was like a six hour drive there and a six hour drive back. So we left really, really early in the morning and it was still dark. And I read to her from the gloaming, like the whole way. And then we saw this uh, glacier. It was absolutely amazing. I, I won't even attempt the name cause it's in Icelandic <laughs> and I'll butcher it, but beautiful. One of the most stunning, stunning things I've ever seen in my life. And we, you know, spent a day at the glacier and then we drove all the way back and I read to her all the way back um but you know we've got a baby now so we can't <laughs> go on six hour drives anymore um so instead what I did was I just recorded it all for her so just at home like on garage band I just recorded it all and she then listened to it on her drive to and from work um so that's how I did that so that was really useful for me as part of the editing process like I would highly recommend any writers listening read your work out loud you don't have to record them for your partner if you don't want to um even just the process of reading out loud made me realize oh hang on this bit is, like if, if I was bored reading it I thought that needs to get cut mm. down or if I suddenly was thinking wait why is he doing that that doesn't make sense I would think well I need to lead into that a bit better so just the process of having to say every single word out loud was so valuable to mm. me so then I cut we were almost at copy edit stage. My editor had been over it with me, sent me edits. And I had to say to her, oh, it's going to take a bit longer because I've decided to cut a sixth of the book again. And she was like, okay. <laughs> but I think it's made it a lot tighter. Mm-hmm. And I think before I had this image in my head that I wanted it to be this really big chunky book. I really like this idea of writing this big historical chunker. And it's, it's not a short book, but it's not that long. Mm. And I think that's because I just went over it and over it and just cut, 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 cut um, to, to sort of, I really wanted to have that pace and um, it be a compelling story. Mm. So I guess the short answer is you just cut a load out. You just spend <laughs> months and months writing things that you just then delete. Mm is my answer but the yeah the act of reading it aloud I guess you're you're experiencing it as the reader sort of at the same time aren't you so it's uh it's a really yeah good advice what I also adore about this book and what I like like about your writing generally is that you are able to create such a vivid sense 
of the world around your characters. I'm an absolute, I think I'm just an absolute sucker for any kind of world building um, in like TV and film and, and books. Um, so when Lux is with the mummers, I absolutely loved that section. Um, or she's in the poison garden or she's exploring the kind of the stalls and the entertainment of the fair when she's gone north. Um, they're so rich in detail and about sort of the natural world and the materials that we used in the everyday, um, sort of the animal skins and the guts and the ribbon and the, the colour and the, the darkness and the light um, and a lot about the senses. Um, how do you approach creating a very sort of vivid setting or world? What would your best tips be for someone who's sort of looking to write a setting that enhances the story or the characters? Mm. I mean, I'm just playing villages, really. Yeah. Just I can see how yeah. that all comes together, though. Yeah, that you've been yeah you've been doing this a long time, and also yeah. the shoe obsessions are coming together as well. If you were building houses true. out of shoes, yes, I know. Fairy tales with shoes. Yeah, yeah. I just keep coming back to shoes. Yeah. It's weird, isn't it? um, yeah, I, I guess I'm just six years old playing villages again. <laughs> um, that's just what I really I love world building. Like if I could just basically, what I would love see if I could just. Do world, do world building, make a playlist and make like a Pinterest image board and then just send it to my editor. Like, here's the book. Yeah. Which sadly you can't, which is be why. Fun to make it. though. I know. I would just love to do that. Anyway, maybe someday I'll be able to do that. And that'll just be, that's the fun part for me. Actually telling a coherent narrative is the hard work mm. part for me, but the making a world is, is the fun part. Um, yeah, I just, I guess I'm just really into detail. Um, I think all writers are magpies a bit, you know, we take, oh, I like that. I'll have that. I'll have that. I'll have that. And then, and we kind of chuck it all in. I have this theory that there's two kind of two ways to write a book. Um, you, you either have the little spark or you have the cauldron and I'll explain what I mean by that. Um, so sometimes a book comes from like a spark. So like the grace keepers came from one spark, which is that I was out on a boat and I saw a, a boy, um, that looked like a light in a cage and it looked like a bird cage to me. I mean, it was a light in a cage. It looked like a bird cage. And I thought, well, why would you have a bird cage at sea? And the whole book came from that eventually, wow. obviously I had to sort of flesh it out a lot, but that was where it came from. This sense of like a bird cage in the sea. So to me, that's a spark book. That's just this one tiny spark and that everything expands out from that. Whereas this book is a cauldron book. So fitting. Yeah. Right. So I researched it for so long. Um, and I basically just chucked it all in everything that is, Oh, mummers. I like that. Oh, a flagellant parade. Oh, I like that. Oh, a frost fair. I like that. Chuck that in. Oh, poison. Chuck mm -hmm. that in. Oh, leeches. Chuck that in. Everything just got chucked into the cauldron. And then, you know, you stir it all in. But then the key is you just take one spoonful. Mm -hmm. You, nobody wants to drink the whole cauldron. You want one little spoon but it's got the flavors of everything in it. So I guess that would be my tip is like when you're researching, just chuck it all in. Anything that you think, huh, that's interesting. I like that. Just chuck it in. Don't worry yet how it's going to work because when you come to do the writing, that's you lifting up just the one little delicious concentrated umami little spoonful. Mm. Um, so I guess that's how I just really love, I love detail. I love kind of textural detail I think people quite often we're very influenced by films so people quite often focus on sight and sound which I think is great but 
I think it's really good to focus on, you know, touch, texture, temperature, taste, smell, all these kinds of things. And I really feel like the Middle Ages would have been a very sensory time. Yeah. Yeah. Just the the smells, you know, um, I often wonder what people from the Middle Ages would think we smelled like. I think they would think we smelled very, like, chemical. Mm. Um, sort of all the layers of chemicals that we just obviously don't smell it anymore mm. but um how they whereas we would probably think that they smelled very much of like body odor or bad teeth that kind of thing um pungent. Had rotten teeth. pungent yeah. yeah but in a different way they would think we were pungent in a very different way um i'm sure they'd be able to smell like our shampoo or hair dye or whatever it is makeup anything that we've got on we're just used to those so we don't mm. smell them anymore um you know the leather of our shoes anything like that um so i find that really interesting just this thought of like what what would it be like? Because I think quite often when we think of the past, we can think of it as, as existing as, you know, a little etching or a little sketch on the wall or we picture people actually looking like I do, picture them looking like the old paintings. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas people in the past weren't living in the past. They were living in the present of their own present. You know, we're we're in the past of, of people in the future mm-hmm. and I'm sure people in the future will be looking at us thinking, wow, how did they manage how did they cope without all these whatever advances in technology of a different world that they're living in so I think for me it was it was always about grounding it it's always about and I think if you want to write anything fantastical I think the more you can ground it the better and that was a piece of writing advice I had once that was about if you're describing a dragon look at the scales like what are the scales like have they got little animals living in the scales mm. are they are they musty are they, are they moldy are they very dry like a snake um they're kind of like dry soft scales like a snake or is it moist like a frog like what what is it like look at the actual detail and that's how you make something bizarre seem real and it doesn't just have to be i mean the middle ages to us now are as fantastical as a dragon yeah absolutely or as a unicorn because we're never going to go there. We're never going to really know what it was like. So it's about how do you make it as real as you can? And, you know, we can only write what we know to some extent. Mm. I can't write about a smell or a texture that I have never experienced. Mm. Um, so it's just about thinking, well, what do I know? You know, I can think a frost fair, you know, I know what ice feels like. I can describe what ice feels like. You know, she sleeps under a fur. I know what fur, mm. animal fur feels like. So I'll describe that. You know, she eats a potato. I know, well, actually she wouldn't have had potatoes. That was one of oh, the things. Like a- yeah, that was like, um, I remember doing a little note to myself that I was like, I'm going to write this medieval novel. Okay, so we're going to have no knights, no jousting, no ladies in pointy hats and no potatoes because they didn't come over until I believe the 1600s. <laughs> and I think when we think of like a medieval peasant, we're like, potatoes. That's how cool. They ate potatoes. Apparently they didn't eat potatoes. Um, so nobody eats a potato in this book. But you know, onions, they eat a lot of onions. I know what an onion looks like. I know what an onion smells like. Um, so I think just focusing on things that you do know, mm. things that you can understand and sort of experience. I got, yeah, such distinct sense of smell and touch in particular from this book, which are um, probably the senses, the senses that stay with you the longest, I think, in terms of the memory, like the smell of something, or I'm quite a tactile person, so the feeling of something is what stays with me the longest, rather than I think I'm probably not very good at listening sometimes. And uh, yeah, my memory in terms of the things that I've seen, not quite as strong. So actually I was really struck by getting this really visceral sense of kind of 
taste and smell and touch, which um, I really loved. And you do you 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 build wells when you're describing these scenes. It is quite succinct as well. You know, it's not a, get a description of the frost fairy, for example. It didn't feel like it went on for you know. It's not on for chapters. I think you're you're such an expert at doing that in a few lines or a few paragraphs and it's sort of fully fleshed and built out but and that's always quite an art as well isn't it rather than kind of writing I don't know sort of weaving these elements in rather than going okay I'm going to set a scene so I'll spend six pages just Mm. you know writing about everything that's around me so that's always really um yeah, I mean, I suppose my other writing tip would be just focus on what your character's actually experiencing. Because mm. they're know, not experiencing, experiencing everything. They're not, they? of, yeah, course, of course, yeah. So she, you know, she lives in this stronghold. There would be hundreds of people there. There would be um, knights there. There would be all these passers-by. But she's not there. Mm. She's in the kitchen. So mm. all she knows is what's in the kitchen. She's baking bread. She's chopping onions. She's pulling the feathers out of geese. That's what she's doing. That's the world that she knows. She's not really concerned about what's happening over there yeah. because it's not relevant to her life, which I think we're all kind of like. Mm. Um, so we, don't, yeah. we don't think about that. And, you know, with, with the Gracekeepers um, in particular, you know, it was set in this flooded world. And I was thinking, God, should I explain? Like, how did we get here? How, <laughs> how did the world become flooded? I mean, the world couldn't become flooded to that extent. There's simply not enough water mm. on the planet, but, you know, it's a story. Um, and I thought, oh, would she not be thinking about how the world became flooded? And I was like, no, I don't think. I go home to my house. I don't think, hmm, when this house was built, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. I don't know when it was built. I use stuff all the time that I don't know how it works. How does the internet work? I have no clue. And I use it every single day. So I think... Only explain it if it's relevant to the story. It really doesn't matter. I personally don't like it when I'm uh, reading a sci-fi and it explains to me how the faster than light travel works because it couldn't work. So don't try and explain it. Just say just say that it's there and I'll yeah. believe it because I just want to hear a story. That's just me. Some people maybe do want to hear how it mm. works. But my advice would be to create a world. You just need to have it be vivid for your character, your point yeah. of view character. They are not going to know what's happening on the other side of the world, particularly at this time period. They're not even going to know what's happening in the next town over. They're not going to know what's happening on the other side of the wall necessarily. You just have to focus on what do they know? What what can they experience? And other than that, that that's how you make it feel real, mm-hmm. I think, because that's how we all experience the world. That's a very, yeah, that's a brilliant piece of advice, actually. Um, I'll think about that myself. Um, and you mentioned um, kind of the research. We, we, you've mentioned you've talked a bit about the sort of historical accuracy and how actually um, this book didn't need to be his, strictly historically accurate. That wasn't sort of a, a priority for you. But you've touched upon some of the research that you, you you did do before writing this book. What 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 kind of shape did that research take? Did you are you someone who spends a long time researching? Or are you? Yeah, I even I even sort of flinch at calling it research because to me it's just like finding interesting things. You, yeah, I get the sense that you're someone who probably just really likes that's part of the fun anyway. It's not like doing homework. It's kind of just. Do you know what I used to do as a child? I used to get books out of the library and make notes from them. Oh. Why? Not for anything. Not for school. I just was interested. I remember getting a book out of like unexplained phenomenon and I would like bullet point what did I think were the most interesting like unexplained phenomenon. And I remember actually getting a witchcraft book out and like noting down, oh, this is fun. What for? For nothing. I just was interested. 
So I feel like as a child, I loved making villages and I loved collecting interesting tidbits of information. So amazingly, I've made a career out of it. Yeah, I was going to say you were destined to be a writer because they all sound like useful pastimes for (laughs) someone who's going to write stories. Yeah, so I just have always really enjoyed doing that. I love to just be able to say, did you know there were no potato People didn't eat potatoes in the UK in the Middle Ages. Um, I just really enjoy little pieces like that. So I would say kind of on and off for a period of about six months, um, I would go to the Mitchell, this was pre-pandemic, I would go mm. to the Mitchell Library in Glasgow and I would sort of vaguely go to the medieval section, but there was also that element of randomness and that's what I really missed during the pandemic um, was random mm. because you, you can research almost anything on the internet but that it's harder to be random whereas what I really enjoyed about being in a physical library I also uh, used the welcome library in London which I really love sometimes I would just wander the shelves and just read the spines of the books and just think huh that sounds interesting and that led me down a lot of rabbit holes that were really really interesting just elements to the story that I wouldn't have really thought of um I really enjoy that. There was lots of stuff about dying processes. There's a whole um, bit in it about this peddler who has all these brightly Mm. coloured ribbons in his jacket. So like learning about how they would have used different dyes and things. And that wasn't necessarily medieval appropriate. It's just these techniques are still used. that are very ancient techniques for dyeing fabric, that kind of thing. Um, So yeah, there was just that element of randomness. And I spent quite a long time reading, I must have read maybe about 30 books about the middle ages and maybe about 30 books about witches wow and i barely scratched the surface i have read 0.01 percent of things out there about both of these subjects but i was starting to get really overwhelmed and i thought i could read these for the rest of my life and never ever write a book because i still feel like i don't really know that much about any of these topics even though i read so much about them and spent so long thinking about them because there's just so much there's so much out there and you you can't know everything. I wasn't trying to become a medieval scholar or a witch scholar. I was trying to tell a story. So I just had to research enough to tell a story that felt real. Um, You can get really bogged down in research. And I guess my tip for during the writing, I would just do a little note to myself, which to me was, I I would always do XXX because no words have that in it. So you Mm. can easily do find in your manuscript. Um, You know, I wouldn't put in like find because you probably have used the word find in your manuscript so use some combination of letters that won't be in any words and because I would be going through and I would write a sentence like Lux put her what on I'd be like what does she wear I don't know what she wears (laughs) she puts her dress on she puts her petty what does she wear I don't even know see I would have to she puts her xxx on go back and research that later and then I would just keep writing or you know um, Lux had her breakfast. What would she have? I don't know. I would need to go and research that. Um, so I would just do these little notes to myself and like go back and it's stuff like that. If you just need, I just Googled loads of stuff like what did people wear in 1450? And then there's actually loads of stuff on YouTube, people sort of doing reenactments of, I spent ages watching this video. I was going to do a scene of somebody washing their hair. Um, because they use this combination of all different things to wash their hair. And then I ended up not writing it. So much stuff that I spent ages researching. But I feel like it all feeds in eventually. Maybe one day I'll do this hair washing, <laughs> this medieval hair washing scene. Um, but again, there's loads of brilliant stuff um, on YouTube. People doing reenactments of various things. Um, just, yeah, really brilliant stuff. So my research process is basically 
shiny. Ooh, mm. shiny. Ooh, a shiny thing. Oh, I'll have that and just again chuck it in the cauldron. Um, I tend not to research the things that I consider boring, like the sort of useful things, the mm. practical day to day things, but then I just Google them. Yeah. And, you know, you sort of learn of like, this doesn't seem credible, like a credible source. Or you think, oh, yeah, this seems, you know, if this same thing is on a few different websites that look credible, they're from like proper educational mm. centers, then just just go for that. So uh, I'm researching um, a book at the moment, which will take me, again, probably six years again to do to do the next one. Hopefully I'll have some other stuff out in the meantime. But um, I would say it'll be about six years till the next big chunky historical mm. novel but I've started doing research on that yeah there's just so much there's so much information so much out there so again I'll probably reach a point of becoming very overwhelmed and then thinking no you have to stop you have to write the story at some point um because there's so many there's not just the historical time period there's also thematically so much that I want mm. to cover and so then you know you get you fall down the rabbit hole of doing those research elements but I like that I guess I guess I think of research as like just sort of paddling around in things for quite a long period of time while somewhere in the back of my mind the story is gradually coming Mm. together um I don't think you can really specifically find a lot of stuff because you don't really you don't know what you want until you see it so for example there's a whole section in there about this leech party so all the all the kitchen girls um they sneak out at night and they do this again this thing of it's not exactly witchcraft it's similar to how we might have a crystal or a tarot reading now that they're sort of doing this slightly woo-woo thing to do with Mm -hmm. leeches because they want to find out who their husbands are going to be um and again I just had happened to stumble on something about leeches and I was like huh it's weird that there's no leeches in this book. I really should uh, should put some leeches in here. What this book here. is missing is That's leeches. what it's missing, leeches. Um, so yeah, it's just sort of letting it all percolate, letting it... So I'm at that stage now with this new book that I've, again, been researching it for a little while, but not really seriously researching. I'm just sort of finding the shiny things and just slowly letting it come together mm. in the back of my mind, which hopefully it will eventually. And then I'll you- write loads and cut it all probably. <laughs> I guess the beauty about finding those shiny things as well is that you might use, you know, three of them for this book, but you might store the other ones and they might end up being used for another book. Um, Yeah, you never know. And quite often when I think I'm mucking about, so I'll be reading or or writing and I'll think, oh, I need a break. I need a break. So I'll go and watch some silly YouTube video like top 10 forbidden romances in 90s films. And then there'll just be something. There'll be one line that'll be like, huh, that's interesting. Do you know what's missing from this book? A forbidden romance. I'm going to use that. So sometimes even, maybe that's what's great and terrible about being a writer is you're never off. Mm. Like as a writer, a lot of what you're doing, it doesn't feel like work. But then there's also not ever a point that you're not working. Like I was on the train yesterday and was overhearing these two, I would say maybe 13 year old girls talking. And it was so fascinating the way that they were interacting and the things that they were saying to each other. And I didn't want to make notes because it felt a bit weird, but I was like earwigging without it making it seem that I was because I thought this is gold. This is so good for a story. It's so good. And every now and then I'll overhear something um, or just see something on a sign or something that I'll think, oh, I can use that. So you're never really off. So talking of future books and future writing, you have another book coming out soon. It's a memoir, The Unfamiliar, which is a memoir of queer pregnancy and parenthood. 
Has I, I wanted to ask you before we kind of wrap up, has becoming a mother altered your approach to writing at all? Aside from the obvious that, you know, you probably can't, it makes it harder to, I imagine, build a writing routine at home when you've got a small baby around. But um, has it, yeah, has it altered your approach to writing? Or Yeah, it's interesting. Obviously, there's, you know, the obvious stuff that I'm more sleep deprived now and uh, have it's not that I have less writing time. My writing time is a lot more focused. Um, we're very fortunate with childcare that we have family who look after the baby. And that's great, but I'm very conscious of the time that I have. Um, so I really condense things now. So this memoir, much of it was written. Um, so obviously it's a memoir, so I had been making notes on it over quite a long period of time. About It took us about seven years, actually, to, to eventually have a baby, um, my wife and myself. So... I had been making notes for that entire time, not really knowing what I was making the notes for. Again, story of my life, I just make notes about stuff, not really knowing why. Um, But most of the first draft was written in a very intense two-week period because that's what I had. That is what I had available was this very intense two-week period. And most of the rewrites and edits were done on a very intense one-week period. So on the one hand, this book was written in three weeks, but on the other hand, it was written in seven years. It depends how you define it, I suppose. Um, so yeah, I'm just have to be a lot more focused now um, and more selective, I think, with with what I'm doing. Um, I also think there's just more guilt. I really think they inject it into you in the labour ward. This guilt, <laughs> guilt injection. Um, because I never used to struggle with guilt. Lots of other things: imposter syndrome, anxiety, everything like that. But not guilt. Whereas now. It's quite difficult because quite a lot of writing looks like doing nothing. And a lot of the process of writing I enjoy. A lot of it I don't enjoy, but a lot of it I do enjoy. I enjoy, um, you know, reading books and collecting my little gleaming things that I'm going to use, chucking it all into my cauldron. I really enjoy that. Sometimes you're just staring out of the window. Sometimes you're just going for a long walk, sort of staring blankly into space as you walk. I sometimes, I'm sure I sometimes like mouth to myself as I'm walking because I'm sort of playing through fictional conversations. I'm sure I look very bizarre when I'm doing that, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that is what I do. I sometimes I even just do the facial expressions of the person's response that I'm imagining. Um, but that all looks like nothing. And I have struggled a bit with the guilt around that, that I think... It's fine if someone else is looking after the baby and I'm doing something obvious, like my hands are on the keyboard, type, 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 or I'm doing edits, very focused. At the end of the day, you can say, look, I did these 10 pages today. Whereas when I'm doing the just as important, but more nebulous stuff Mm. of like daydreaming, researching, thinking, I'm really struggling with feeling like that's okay. And nobody is putting it on me except me. Nobody else cares what I do all day. They don't, you know, I go to pick the baby up and all I hear is, you know, here's what the baby's been doing today. Nobody says, what have you been doing today? Just, they just assume something I'm doing. So it's, it's just me putting it on me. But I do think parent guilt is really real. And I think before I became a parent, I was like, well, forget that noise. I'm not going to have that. But, um, I think you have it whether you want to or not. Yeah. Yeah. But I mean, I'm working on it. And like I say, it's just me putting this on me. No one else cares Mm -hmm. what I do with my time. I could just nap all day and nobody would even know. I mean, not that I would, but they wouldn't know. (laughs) No, nobody would know or care if that's what I was doing all day. Um, so yeah, I think I'm going through a process, which is interesting because I think it's a process that I went through at the start of 
writing mm. you know maybe 10 years ago it's, it's coming up 10 years that my first book came out um and I think around that time I was really struggling to justify what was not obviously paid work so you know I was doing some paid work I was doing a, a column I was doing like some kind of arts uh, reviewing things like reviewing books and things and that's really obvious you put the words on the page and someone is giving you this set amount of money for it great that is work that is what we think of as work whereas if I'm you know, I went for a walk for two hours and daydreamed and came up with a story idea. And then I went and read this book about early surgery techniques. And what for? For what? What's the story? How much money? Don't know. Maybe someday someone will pay me for it, but I don't know when or how or how much or anything. And it's really hard sometimes to justify that to ourselves. Mm -hmm. And I really struggled with that at the beginning because it takes so much time and effort and thought to learn how to write. And no one is paying you for it and no one is giving you any prestige or anything like that. So I, I remember that struggle really, really well. And I'm sure people listening are maybe in that place right now that they're attempting to justify to themselves or to others this apparently pointless time, which is not pointless. And it's really part of the process, but it's hard to see it as part of the process. Mm. Sometimes we just think that the putting the words on the page is writing. It's not that's the end. Mm. That's the kind of last 10% of the process. And you can't get the words on the page if you haven't done the 90% of thinking, reading, daydreaming, putting the pieces together, figuring out what do you actually want to say? Mm. Not just what happens in the story, but why? Why tell this story at all? And you need to think to, to get that down. So yeah, I feel like yeah, becoming a parent was, it's almost like a reset Yeah, that I'm like back because I'm learning again. Who am I? Who am I as a person? Who am I as a writer? So yeah, I feel like a lot of the early stuff that I learned, I'm having to relearn in a slightly different way. I think it's good though. I think it's making me maybe a more thoughtful writer mm. because I, everything has to be more focused. Mm. So hopefully. You're really economizing your time there, aren't you? If you've got, yeah, less of it to give. Um, yeah and people say things like well you know when you're with the baby you can be thinking about your story and do you know what maybe you can do that with my baby with your baby I can't do it with mine it's 100% attention or nothing or it's going to be like all the lamps are going to be on the floor and all the books are going to be pulled off the bookcase you know all that kind of thing so um I have to be very mindful like when I'm in mum mode I have to be fully in mum mode and when I'm in writer mode I have to be fully in writer mode so need um, that separate yeah that yeah I really need that separation yeah I have friends who are writers and parents and they can do things like write while the baby's napping and I just I can't I mean it's incredible for, mm. for them um it's not something that I'm able to do maybe one day I'll be able to do that but certainly not right now. I'm always fascinated by the way that writers are able to juggle their time between other responsibilities as well. I think it was maybe Sinead Gleason had said that she would get up, you know, before the school run mm. and do all her writing at like, I don't know, 5am before. She's like, bloody hell, I don't have kids and I couldn't do that. It's an amazing... Yeah. So I guess you just end up, you do what you have to do yeah. to get the work done. Mm. Yeah. So I get, yeah, I guess I'm just on a process of discovery process of yeah I'm still trying to learn I guess I don't really know the answer to the question because I'm still I'm still figuring it out that's exciting and do you have anything else coming up what's next for you after that are you juggling any more projects you always seem to wow. be very busy with lots <laughs> and lots and lots of bits and pieces I do have lots of bits and pieces well so 
my 2023 list so far, there's Now She's Witches out in January. In March, I have a story which is actually linked to Now She's Witch. So mm-hmm. it's a story, it's a standalone story. You can just read it standalone, but it is about Lux. Wonderful. Um, which is going to be in an anthology from Virago that has got um, some incredible writers in it. It's got Emma Donoghue, Ali Smith, Margaret Atwood, just like wildness. Kirsty Logan. I, I looked at the cover and I'm like, how is my name alongside Camilla Shamsi? How is my name wow, alongside these fantastic. people? Incredible. So that's going to be out in March. Um, and then in July, The Unfamiliar, which is the queer um, motherhood memoir that is going to come out. Um, and I also, I do quite a lot of collaborative work. So I have just done a chat book um, with this brilliant artist called Block Forest. And he does these wood block um, mm. print amazing stuff and we wrote this uh, little chat book together that's called close your eyes and come with me which is retellings of um british myths with a queer kind of twist to them um and i did the they're all kind of like monologues almost um so i wrote them and he did these kind of custom prints so you can get them on his website um, blockforest uh, .co.uk I think and that was really fun and then I also just did a collaborative project for the Scottish Storytelling Centre with these two brilliant musicians um, Kirsty Law and Esther Swift and Kirsty is a singer and a guitarist and Esther is a harpist and we did this um, one hour performance piece that's um, based on Tamlin the folktale mm. but it's um, modernised and it's very much about bodily autonomy it's about abortion rights um, it's about sexual assault um, but all told through storytelling and song and heart music and um, that was really fun so it's, we've only done one performance of it wow. um, but I'm hoping we will have other chances because we wrote obviously we wrote this whole show mm-hmm. like from scratch we wrote it all together um, so that's been really fun so I'm hoping there will be more um, more performances of that and it was called The Pulling of the Rose which is um, how Tamlin starts that Janet goes walking in the woods and pulls a double rose and um, Tamlin who is this sort of sexy fairy man appears and says why are you taking this rose that belongs to me and she says excuse me no it does not belong to you this rose belongs to me this land belongs to me everything that you can see including me belongs to me Um, so it's actually quite um, a forward thinking story and it is already we didn't make it be about abortion rights that is what it's about because uh, she uh, disappears off with Tamlin and then finds out she's with child how did that happen and um, Um, so then she goes back into the woods to find some herbs because she doesn't want the child she doesn't want to be a single mother Um, and that's when she meets Tamlin again and that's where I won't tell you what happens in the story but that's where the whole story goes Um, so we were just pulling out themes that were already already there but we were sort of modernising them and it feels very relevant to right now um, when a lot of uh, rights to bodily autonomy are being taken away um, Mm -hmm. or being threatened so yeah, it felt very, felt very timely. So yeah, that's all the things that I'm working on. Just a few. That's a few. that's a very a exciting year. I can't and being wait. A new parent. To, and being a new parent and all of those other exciting bits. So I can't wait to, yeah, to learn and read and to, to discover more about those things. And I really appreciate you coming to chat to me today. It's been lovely. Thank you. It's been a joy. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll have you on again for your next book. I would love that. Big thank you to Kirsty for her time. Make sure you track down her new book, Now She Is Witch. 
If you have questions or want to get in touch, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Writers Centre, and you'll find us on Facebook by searching National Centre for Writing. Don't forget to sign up to our weekly newsletter by visiting nationalcentreforwriting.org.uk and clicking the orange drop-down box on the homepage. As a UK-registered charity, we rely on the generosity of our supporters to make our work possible. You can make a donation over on the website today by hitting the Support Us button in the top nav. Don't forget to subscribe, rate and review us because it helps other writers to find the podcast. Thanks again, keep writing and we'll catch you on the next episode.